morning. Good morning, TLC. I have a question. Uh, anybody ever received a, an exciting gift that came with like not so exciting implications or possibilities with it? Like, uh, let me give you some examples. I'm talking about the time when you received that super sweet, thoughtful note from your friend or your roommate right before they told you that they were moving away or moving out. Or uh, maybe the time that your parents took you on the uh, ice cream date to Frosty Boy just to tell you that you got to get your grades up, you know, like and no more ice cream until you start getting C's, okay, at least. Some of you guys are like, C's? Yes, okay, C's get degrees. All right, last, last example here, last example. Uh, maybe the, uh, the weird plant thing that you were given just before the holiday, just before the breakup. Some of you guys are like, wait, I received a weird plant thing yesterday. What are you telling me, Austin? You might want to have a conversation with somebody, okay? No, I'm just kidding. It's fine. It's fine. It's going to be fine. Uh, Sometimes there are gifts that are given, and these are small examples that I just listed, But there are gifts that are given that carry an equal amount of hope and an equal amount of sorrow. Like the gift given from the parents to the child as their moving in gift the first time that they move out to the college dorm or the apartment. Or the make-a-wish type experience right after the diagnosis. Olivia and I received a, a gift like this not too long ago. It was around this time last year. We had just had our son, uh, Emmaus, who just, uh, just a little bit ago turned a year old. He's awesome. And, uh, and I remember uh, just a few days after we got home, my parents came over to deliver a meal and to deliver a gift. And the gift was a book. Uh, it was this book, All the Ways I Love You. Uh, It's a a special book. It's a special gift for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons is because of this here. All the ways we love you, Emmaus. A gift for you. From Gigi and Papa. That's what they go by, Gigi and Papa. Gigi and Papa. It's an audio book. Who is that? That's my parents. They recorded it. It's a recorded audio book, right? You didn't think you'd hear a children's story read to you this morning, but you did. Now, this book is a a cherished gift outside of the times when it's left slightly open on our bookshelf in our nursery, and out of nowhere, I will just hear my parents' voices, and it terrifies me. Otherwise, it's a cherished gift. It's a gift that was full of hope from two grandparents deeply in love with this new arrival to our family. But it was also a gift full of sorrow, given out of the recognition that every grandparent must reconcile with, but one in particular in my dad who was dealing with a pretty significant cancer diagnosis at the time. And you just don't know how long you'll be around. It was a gift full of hope and a gift full of sorrow. And this book, All the Ways I Love You, reminds me of the third and final gift that Jesus received soon after he was born. 
If you guys have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn to Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. We're going to read the narrative of the Magi and the gifts that we've been engaging with over the last few weeks. And as you turn, just a reminder, we're continuing our Advent series this morning, King Gift, where we've been zooming in on the, the three gifts that were given to Jesus and just examining the ways that these gifts point to and symbolize and represent who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. So let's read here in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. It says this, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time that the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Liar. He does not want to worship him. Anyway, after they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And, uh, and having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another root. So this morning, this week, we arrive at the third and final gift. Well, I think they were all given at the same time, but it's the last one listed, right? We have gold. Two weeks ago, we talked about gold and how it represents King Jesus who reigns. Last week, we talked about frankincense and how it points to and represents Jesus as the high priest who redeems. And this morning, we get to the third and final gift, the gift of myrrh. Now, I don't know, if you're like me, I hear these three gifts, and something, it just seems weird. It's like, it's gold, frankincense, myrrh. You know, like, it sounds like a sound that my son would make, like, myrrh, myrrh, you know. It's just weird, okay? Gold, frankincense, myrrh. So we're going to have a little fun with this. I'm going to say myrrh a lot today, so I need your, some participation this morning. When I point to you guys, I'm going to have you guys all say, myrrh. All right, let's practice, okay? Ready? Oh, so good. One more time, just because I want to get this, you know, perfect. Beautiful. Okay, when I point, you say? Fantastic. Let's not lose that myrrh, all right? I don't want too serious. I want myrrh, okay? All right. So, what is myrrh? I'm going to make you say it a lot. I should at least tell you what it is. It's very similar to frankincense. If you were here last week, Torin talked about frankincense. Uh, myrrh is just like that, where it's like a, it's a gum. It's like a sap that's collected off of a tree. The official name of the tree is Comifora myrrh. I'm a botanist in my free time. Uh, not really. Comifora myrrh is the tree that you co- it's collected off of. It can be used as, in liquid form as an oil. It can also be hardened into a resin to be burned like incense, just like frankincense, right? Now, the, the, the uh, myrrh is kind of pops up throughout the Bible. It's used and it's referenced many times. And so what I want to do this morning is just kind of rattle through, do a quick survey of all the times we see it kind of pop up in the Bible. This is where you guys come in, all right? I'm going to, have, I'm going to be pointing. I'm going to, I'm going to need some participation here, all right? So the first time that we see myrrh pop up in the Bible is in the book of Genesis in chapter 37. Myrrh is just being traded as a gift or as a, as a good. It says, their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and 
Beautiful. And they were on their way to take them to Egypt, right? That's Genesis 37. It's a, it's a good that's being traded. Next time we see it is in Genesis 43. It's being given as a gift from uh, Jacob, the father, Israel. And, and he's given it as a gift to his son Joseph. He says, take some bags down to the man as a gift, a little balm, a little honey, some spices, and... That's right. Okay. All right. So it's a it's a trade. Being, it's a good being traded. It's a gift being given. But that's not all. It is. This is a big one in Exodus thirty. This is actually the passage that Torm was in last week when he was talking about the tabernacle. He showed the picture of the creepy mannequin that, that we got to see while we were in Israel uh, in the spring. And in Exodus thirty verses twenty two to twenty five, there's some parts here where God is giving some instruction to Moses on this oil that would be used to anoint. It was called a holy, it was a sacred anointing oil. And it says this, he said, the Lord said, the Lord said to Moses, take the following fine spices. The first ingredient, 500 shekels of liquid. That's right. Make this into a sacred anointing oil, a fragrant blend, the work of a perfumer. It will be the sacred anointing oil. This is the oil. They're going to use this all over the tabernacle. Anything that's God's holy thing, consecrated, set aside, we're going to use this holy oil. It's called the oil of gladness. We see it referenced uh, in Psalm 45. I'm not going to read Psalm 45, but you can see it. We're going to actually see this text a little later on this morning. Now, that's not all that uh, the myrrh was used for, just the sacred anointing oil. It was also used as a perfume. If you read the Song of Songs, a very spicy book, you'll see a lot of myrrh being referenced. Okay, here's here's an example of Song of Songs. Two lovers. uh, The lover says, I've come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my... Myrrh, okay, myrrh is a perfume. You read Song of Songs, they're using a lot of myrrh, okay? You want it to smell nice, you know, perfume, it smells good, okay? That's not all, though. Also, we have in the book of Esther, kind of a similar thing. It's used as a a beauty treatment. It says, a young woman's turn came to go into King Xerxes. She had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments. uh, Prescribed for the women, six months with oil of? 12 months, that's a process. But when you think about it, I'm in year 29, and I'm like not even halfway there. So Esther, you know, she was quick with the beauty process. Anyways, uh, that's, that's what we have in the Old Testament, these, this uses, these uses and references of myrrh. But then we get to the New Testament. It's a gift being given to Jesus, of course. But then we only have two other references, really, in the New Testament. And the first one is in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus is being crucified, and it says this, Then they offered him wine mixed with but he did not take it, and they crucified him. So in this instance, myrrh is mixing with wine in some way to numb the pain or to kill the pain. And then the only other time, John 19, it says Nicodemus brought a mixture of, oh, we were weak on that one, brought a mixture of an aloes to embalm the body of Jesus. Now, if you're paying attention you might notice a little bit of like a a weird tension that's created. Like a lot of the ones that I I mentioned in the Old Testament, they they have more of a a vibe of like joy and ceremony and festivity, right? It's It's the key ingredient in the oil of gladness. And then it's given to Jesus, and then the two references that follow are associated with death and suffering. It's a tension that's kind of like the parent giving the gift to the child as they move out for the first time or the the make-a-wish experience after the diagnosis. It's a tension, a combination of hope and sorrow that reminds me of this gift, all the ways I love you. Now I want to explain what I mean here, this 
hope and sorrow in the Bible and, and this tension and what's going on. But to help me do that, just a, a little anecdote, okay? I love that word. It's so fancy. Uh, anyway, uh, one of my favorite parts about my job is that I get to go and have a presence at the school that we partner with, Kenosha Elementary School. I get to be there twice a week just to really just volunteer and be there. Hard to have a school partnership if you're not in the school, right? So I love getting to be there. I'm really just a glorified like lunch and recess duty person. I open milk cartons. I can open milk cartons really fast. Faster than you can say milk carton. Boom. I'm, I'm done. Okay. All right. I get to do that. And then I get to go out to recess and, and I like being out at recess unless it's eight degrees. And then I'm like, can we do indoor recess, please? But we're out there. And one of the things that I do most often while I'm out at recess duty, educators and teachers, you guys will sympathize with me here, uh, is I will see a group of students, maybe two, three, you know, it could be a lot. And I'll walk up to them and I'll say, hey guys, we got to keep our hands to ourselves, right? Like, if, if you need to touch somebody, just hug yourself. Squeeze yourself really tight, okay? Because we, we can't, we got to keep our hands to ourselves. And without fail, 100%, 100 times out of 100, these students, their reply to me is always the same. They say, we're not fighting. I'm like, I didn't say you were fighting. I just said, keep your hands to yourselves, please. But that's beside the point. They say, we're not fighting, we're just playing. We have a teacher over here. Yeah, okay. We're not fighting. We're just playing, right? Like homeboy could have somebody in like a sleeper hold and the leg is around like the USC. He's like, tap out, tap out, tap out. And then I get over. He's like, we're not fighting. We're just playing. Oh my gosh. In the Bible, hope and sorrow are kind of like the students at Kenosha. But when they say, they're not fighting, they're telling the truth. You'll see hope and sorrow so often together in the Bible and it seems like there's a tension, it seems like they're going at each other, which one's going to win, but I promise you friends, they're not fighting, they're just playing. Working together almost. It's a, a combination, a creative tension that I think comes to life most fully and clearly in the life and the role of a biblical prophet. And you're like, where are you going with this man? Like myrrh and hope and sorrow and prophet. It's all going to come together. All right, stick with it here. Stick with it. And uh, I want to explain what a biblical prophet is. What does a biblical prophet do? All right, so I love the way that the Bible Project puts it here. Uh, they say this. Uh, I've paraphrased it. The role of the prophets in the Bible is to speak to a group of people who have already chosen to destroy themselves. The role that they, prophets, so often find themselves playing is the role of witness. They bear witness to the truth of God's steadfast love and faithfulness and loyalty even as the ship is going down in flames. Hope in the midst of sorrow. Now here's where all this comes together. Hope and sorrow and prophets and Jesus and Mers. Jesus was a prophet. Jesus was the prophet. And that's what the gift of myrrh, this third and final gift, points to and symbolizes and represents of who Jesus was and what Jesus came to do. Check out what the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. The author's quoting Psalm 45, the one that we didn't read, when the author writes this, but about the Son, he says, so God's saying this about Jesus, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy or the oil of gladness. 
Hebrew, there, there is so many like hyperlinks and references in this text. In just two verses, the author, he, he, the author is quoting Psalm 45, mentioning and referencing the oil of gladness, which is itself a reference to the book of Exodus, the oil of gladness that we talked about, which is also a reference to a prophet named Isaiah, which is also connected to Jesus. And the whole thing is the author of Hebrews trying to say, listen and listen close. Jesus was a prophet, and Jesus wasn't just a prophet. Jesus is the prophet. Jesus is the prophet who reveals God's steadfast love and faithfulness and loyalty even when the ship is going down in flames. Jesus is hope in the midst of sorrow. And and listen, the, the author of Hebrews is not wanting to get it twisted. Like other prophets offer hope in the midst of sorrow. But Jesus wasn't just a prophet. Jesus was the prophet. Jesus was the prophet. Jesus is hope in the midst of sorrow. He doesn't just give hope in the midst of sorrow. He is hope in the midst of sorrow. And the gift of myrrh didn't like authorize this. It's not like Jesus wasn't this and now he was given myrrh and it's like, oh, now Jesus is this. The same way that gold didn't authorize Jesus as the king who reigns, the same way that frankincense didn't authorize Jesus as the high priest who redeems. No, none of these things made something true about Jesus that wasn't true about him before he came and on earth and was given these gifts. No, each of these gifts, gold, frankincense, myrrh, they point to, they represent, they symbolize something that had always been true about who Jesus was and would always be true now and forevermore. And they declared that the king who reigns, that the high priest who redeems, that the prophet who reveals was here on earth in the flesh. And nothing would ever be the same. Now I want to get back to this prophet business. Because here's the deal with prophets. If, if I told like a, a story, a running story of like all the different prophets, it would look a little bit like that scene in The Incredibles 2 where they show all the different agents in active duty being killed. You know, have you guys seen Incredibles 2? No, I'm the only child in the room. That's fine. Um, here's the deal with prophets. Most of them were not liked and many of them died, murdered by the people they were sent to save. Like, there's a reason nobody's volunteering in the Bible to be a prophet. God's coming to them and saying, you're a prophet. And some of them are, like, running away, like, no, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. Prophets were not liked. Many of them died, murdered by the people they were sent to save. I mean, Isaiah and Jeremiah, two two of the great prophets in the Old Testament, Jewish tradition holds to both of them being murdered. Hebrews 11, many believe, is a reference to Isaiah being sawn in two by King Manasseh. Jeremiah being stoned. Jesus makes a reference to another prophet named Zechariah in Matthew 23, murdered in the temple courts, the temple that he had urged and and begged his people to rebuild and to finish. I mean, talk about irony here, right? The last prophet just before Jesus was a guy by the name of John the Baptist who was beheaded for speaking out against the faulty marriage of King Herod. Most prophets were not liked, and many of them died, murdered by the very people they were sent to save. And Jesus knew this. Jesus was deeply aware of this, of the role that the gift of myrrh pointed to and symbolized and represented and the implications of it. He said it pretty plainly in a parable that I want to read a little bit of for you guys this morning. But before I get there, I actually want to 
read uh, a little bit of a parable that a prophet named Isaiah that we've mentioned a couple of times this morning told. So I'm going to have it on the screen this morning. This is a parable that Isaiah told way before Jesus was on the scene. Isaiah told a parable that said this, My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. The literal translation is stinky grapes. No joke. It yielded stinky grapes. Okay. Now, that's Isaiah. Okay. Now I want you to listen. I'm not going to have it on the screen. We're going to leave the Isaiah verse on the screen so you can see some of the connections here. I'm going to read part of this parable that Jesus told. He said this. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower. Sound familiar? And leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? It's the same question Isaiah asks in his parable later on. Jesus is retelling this parable from Isaiah, but just with a slight twist. In his version, the owner of the vineyard sends his son. And what happens to his son? It's not rhetorical. Somebody in the last service said, they murdered him. (laughs) So good. Anyway, they murdered him. Now Jesus goes on to quote another passage and declare he's the cornerstone of the kingdom of God that's going to crush the kingdoms of this world. And and ultimately, the whole parable, it's it's a warning of hope and it's also a warning of sorrow. And we'll miss the significance of the whole thing if we fail to connect it to Isaiah and all this stuff. But I don't bring it up for that. I bring it up for one reason and one simple reason only. Jesus knew what the gift of myrrh given to him at the very beginning of his life represented, pointed to, symbolized, and what it implied. That he, like most great prophets, would die, murdered by the very people he came to save. In fact, the next time that Jesus is called King of the Jews by a non-Jewish person, by a Gentile, like he was by the Magi in our story that we read this morning, the next time that Jesus is called King of the Jews is all the way at the end of the story in Matthew when Jesus is standing before a guy by the name of Pontius Pilate about to suffer the same fate many great prophets had suffered before him, about to be murdered by the people he was sent to save as they chanted, crucify him, crucify him. You see, the question that I think the gift of myrrh asks of us this morning is a simple one. How do you need Jesus to arrive as a prophet today? How do you need Jesus to reveal God's steadfast love and faithfulness and hope in the midst of sorrow 
today, as we anticipate Jesus' arrival in the past, as we look forward to it in the future, we also look for it today in the present, in this Advent season. And how do you need Jesus' arrival as a prophet today? Maybe you've had a, a life stage change. Maybe, maybe you had a roommate move, move out or a best friend move away and you've been feeling isolated and lonely recently. And you're in desperate need of others to come around you and to fill you with the, the sweet aroma of Christ. Maybe there's a new diagnosis or there's a, a family relationship that's been severed and things have gotten dark, things have gotten dreary, things have gotten ugly. And you need Jesus to come and to speak and to act and move clearly to add beauty and light. Maybe there's been a, a loss of job. Maybe things just aren't going the way that you thought they would go. Or maybe the pressures of everyday life are just overwhelming and things just feel like they're getting more hard and more painful. And you need to use this Advent season, this arrival of Jesus, to double down on him as your unshakable foundation, as your rest and your refuge, the person who you find your spiritual home in, who even in the midst of pain. Or maybe for the first time, or, or maybe some sort of re-up, recommitment, you, you need to embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior and allow him to embalm you, to prevent the death and destruction that we are all headed towards without his arrival and his life and his death and his resurrection. How do you need Jesus' arrival today as a prophet? How do you need him to reveal God's steadfast love and faithfulness and hope in the midst of sorrow. It is my hope and my prayer that in this Advent season, as we look towards Jesus, past, present, and future, and we see him as, as what he has always been, will always be, now and forevermore, as a prophet, that our eyes would be opened to the way that because of Jesus, as our Advent booklet puts it, Hope and sorrow are not enemies, but co-laborers. Hope and sorrow are not enemies, but co-laborers. Uh, some of you guys know, um, but it was, uh, it was less than five months after we received this book and this gift uh, that we lost my dad in April of this year. And uh, in the same 12-month same span, I gained a son and lost a father. And I'm not going to say too much up here because I can't without losing it. But, and I, I'm not up here to say, woe is me, my life is so hard. I've lived a pretty charmed life for the most part. But I do know that what this year has, has shown me is that it would, be, it would not be truthful for me to stand up here and say, it's all sorrow. It's all bad. It's all sorrow. It would also not be truthful of me to stand up here and say, it's all good. It's all joy. It's all hope. Now, the only thing that I feel convinced to say, the only thing that I just sensed, all this was kind of coming together, my life experience that God just wanted to say through me, the truth that I wanted to convey is, what I've learned in this last year is that the only two hands that are capable of holding hope and sorrow equally are the two hands of Jesus. 
The two hands of Jesus are the only hands that can hold hope and sorrow equally. And then what he does is just miraculous. Is he takes hope and sorrow, he mashes them together, he transforms them, and he brings salvation, he brings healing, he brings restoration. And just when you're like, whoa, what are you doing, Jesus? He's like, no, 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 this is just a taste of what's to come. so we're going to move into a time of response of our King Jesus who reigns, of our high priest Jesus who redeems, of our prophet Jesus who reveals God's steadfast love and faithfulness who is hope in the midst of sorrow before we do that I want to pray So I'd invite you to just close your eyes and and to bow your heads with me this morning. And I just, I've had this overwhelming sense all week that there are just some people in the room this morning who are just, things are hard. As everyone's putting on the smiles, it feels like I don't have the, the smile within me maybe you're here today and you're like man I I need to embrace this Jesus as Lord and Savior for the first time maybe you're like I just need to recommit whatever it is this morning I would invite you if, if it's hope in the midst of sorrow you need Jesus to carry if you need to embrace him for the first time if you just need to recommit I would just invite you everyone's eyes are closed we're bowed this is just an opportunity for anyone and everyone to just open your hands both hands just in in a wide open posture on your lap wherever you'd like to be this is just a posture to say Jesus I need you Jesus I can't carry this all on my own I need you your two hands to carry hope and sorrow to mash them together to bring salvation and healing and restoration I need you as my Lord. I need you as my Savior. Whatever it is, I'd invite anyone and everyone who who wants to position themselves that way to, to do that as I pray this morning. King Jesus, you are the one who reigns above it all. You are a high priest who redeems. You are the prophet who reveals, who is hope in the midst of sorrow. And this morning, with hands open, some of us with hands closed, whatever it is, we want more of you. We are in desperate need of you, Jesus, to be our king, to be our priest, to be our prophet, to reign, to redeem, to reveal that you are who you say you are. Steadfast love and faithfulness abound when we get to know you and to know you more. And we just pray that in this Advent season, as we anticipate your arrival in the past, as we look to it today in the present, as we look forward to it in the future, that you would do what only you can do, that you would bring healing, restoration, salvation, joy, and peace. It's in your name, King Jesus, that we pray to you be the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. So we're gonna respond in worship to this King Jesus with just one final song. And I wanna invite you this morning, if if God's just moving, you need to process, you need to pray with someone, you had your hands open for whatever reason, we have a prayer team, I'll be up here. We would love to just talk and to pray with you. If you need to come and just do business with God, you're more than welcome to do that, but let's come and worship the King.
Jesus, who does what he says he'll do, who is who he says he'll be, a king who keeps his promises.